0: There's a great story that illustrates the difference between a pastor and a theologian. A local church was hosting a conference for Christian theologians from various denominations when all of a sudden a fire broke out in the building where they were meeting. Well, the Methodist theologians, they all huddled in a corner of the sanctuary and they began to pray. The Baptist theologians they immediately went looking for the baptismal pool and some water. The Quaker theologians, they quietly praised God for the eventual blessings of a fire. Lutheran theologians, they nailed a thesis to the door and listed all the evils of fire. Roman Catholic theologians, they took up a collection to pay for the damages. The Greek Orthodox theologians, they posted symbols throughout the sanctuary. Hoping the fire would pass. Congregationalist theologians shouted, Every man for himself. Fundamentalist theologians pronounced, This fire is the vengeance of God. Charismatic theologians positively confessed, There is no fire. Episcopalian theologians, they formed a procession and they marched out of the building while it was burning. Presbyterian theologians appointed a committee to look into the matter of fires in church, and then they submitted a report. But the pastor of the church hosting the conference grabbed a fire extinguisher and put out the fire. You see, theologians, they relate to their books. They think abstract thoughts. They grapple with universal overarching truths about God and mankind and salvation and life and even the afterlife. Their heads are in the clouds. Well, a pastor too has to have his head in the clouds, but his feet have to also be firmly planted on the earth. For unlike a theologian, a pastor's concerns are not just academic, but relational. Not just global, but local. Not just eternal, but daily. A pastor lives life with the people. He has to handle the here and now. He confronts the practical issues that his congregation faces. Theologians deal with the high and lofty. Pastors deal with the nitty-gritty. And Paul was both a pastor and a theologian. The story is told of two men. They were walking through a cemetery. When one guy, he points to a grave. He says, look, two men are buried in that one grave. His buddy said, how do you know? He answered, he said, well, the tombstone reads... Here lies a pastor and a theologian. The implication being that you can't be both. Yet Paul would disagree. He was both a pastor and a theologian. There's never been a sharper theological mind than the Apostle Paul. He pondered deep thoughts. God revealed to him high and holy truths. And yet Paul also spoke practically and personally To the people under his care. In fact, in some of his letters, including 1 Corinthians, Paul is actually writing one side of a conversation. He's answering questions that his readers were asking. He's a pastor trying to help people navigate life and faith. And this is what Paul does in the latter part of chapter four he gets very personal with these Corinthians. You see, the church in Corinth was guilty of petty divisions. The Corinthians had divided themselves over their favorite teachers. Some were of Paul. Others were of Apollos. And in the first three chapters, Paul has tried to correct their divisive spirit with these universal truths, as a theologian might. He's discussed the great unifiers, the message of the cross, the mystery of the church, He has challenged the Corinthians to mature spiritually. He has warned them about the judgment seat of Christ. He's encouraged the church to be the temple of God. He also has acknowledged that they're recipients of Christ, the giver of all things. Paul has even described Christian leadership not as self-promotion, but as servants and stewards of God. Paul has tried to reason them off the cliff of carnality. He has appealed to them on the basis of theological concerns. But now in chapter 4, Paul becomes blunt. He gets more personal with these stubborn Corinthians. He's miles away, and his only instrument is a pen. But as best an author can, Paul looks these readers eye to eye. In this chapter, he sits down to have a heart to heart. Pastor Paul now gets personal with the Corinthians. He's unpacked truth. Now he pours out his heart. He's been profound. Now he begins to prod and probe. He doesn't just expound doctrine. Now he exercises discipline. He reaches out to them not only with logic, but also with love. And in doing so, we see the unavoidable messiness of ministry. It's tough to care for stubborn people. Well, Paul writes in verse 6, Now these things, brethren, I have figuratively transferred to myself and Apollos for your sakes, that you may learn in us not to think beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up on behalf of one against the other. You see, the Corinthians had elevated Paul and Apollos and other apostles to celebrity status, But Paul had set the record straight. The apostles were under rowers, enslaved to their captains' orders. They were custodians of God's mysteries. And in both examples, their goal was that of faithfulness to God, not fame with men. This is why it was preposterous for Christians to divide over their allegiance to galley slaves. And yet the Corinthians had bragged, I am of Paul, I am of Apollos. In reality, their schism had very little to do with these men. It was the result of their own pride. The Corinthians, Paul says, have been puffing themselves up one against another. One commentator says of the Corinthians, they were puffing themselves up like bullfrogs. Did you know that frogs have the ability to inflate their bodies for various reasons? Frogs will puff themselves up to appear bigger. This discourages certain predators from trying to eat them. This is what the male frog does during the mating season. He puffs himself up to impress the female frogs in the pond. When he inflates his throat, it creates an echo chamber, which amplifies his voice and allows him to croak louder. I think this is also the strategy of some human males. We all like to puff ourselves up to impress. We're a lot like frogs. We tend to puff ourselves up. We inflate our ego, our bravado, our resume, our estimation of ourselves in an attempt to get our way or to defend ourselves. You see, the easiest means for me and you to lift ourselves up is by putting down someone else. By making you look bad, it makes me look good. And this is why usually the root cause of division within the church is pride. We'll learn later in 1 Corinthians there are legitimate reasons for Christians to separate. But Paul knew that the divisions in Corinth was nothing more than one bunch of Christians trying to look better than another bunch of Christians. The problem in Corinth was pride. You know, at night, when you hear all the chirping and the trilling, and the croaking. Remember, it's all just frog talk. And a lot of frog talk was going on in the church at Corinth. These Christians were croaking about stuff that didn't matter. They were picking sides, and picking on each other, and picking out each other's flaws. Reminds me of the fellow on the bridge about to jump. A man saw him. He raced to him. He shouted, don't do it. The distraught fellow, he answered, he said, but nobody loves me. The man said, God loves you. Do you believe in God? The fellow weakly replied, yes. The man was excited. He said, are you a Christian or are you a Jew? He said, I'm a Christian. He said, wow, great, me too. He said, Protestant or Catholic? The guy answered, well, I'm Protestant. Me too. What denomination? He said, well, I'm Baptist. Wow, me too. Northern Baptist or Southern Baptist? Oh, I'm Southern Baptist. Incredible. Me too. Southern conservative Baptist or Southern moderate Baptist? He answered, Southern conservative Baptist. Wow, me too. Southern conservative Baptist Great Lakes region or Southern conservative Baptist Eastern region? Oh, Southern Conservative Baptist Great Lakes Region, wonderful, that's amazing, me too. Southern Conservative Baptist Great Lakes Region Council of 1879 or Southern Conservative Baptist Great Lakes Region Council of 1912? The man said, well, Southern Conservative Baptist Great Lakes Region Council of 1912. All of a sudden, the man who had been so helpful, he shouted, you heretic, and then pushed him off the bridge. I mean, at some point, a person's prejudice has nothing to do with any kind of legitimate differences. It's nothing but pride. It's the desire to feel superior, to one-up the other guy. Hey, Paul says to these Corinthians, man, you need to learn not to think beyond what is written. He's saying enough with these unbridled judgments. There are boundaries, In what we can and can't judge. Hey, if it's not written, Paul says, in God's Word, if you can't substantiate it with chapter and verse, if it's just a question of style or opinion or taste or tradition, it's not your business to judge. Just because you don't like a thing doesn't mean it's wrong. We need to be careful in our judging of others. Paul humbles the Corinthians in verse 7. He says, for who makes you differ from another? In essence, every Christian in Corinth had put their britches on the same way. Every Christian was as dead in their sin as the next. They'd all had the same Savior. They'd all received the same grace. Everyone was indwelt by the same Holy Spirit. He says, who makes you differ from another? You have a lot more in common than you do differences and then he says, and what do you have that you did not receive? How can you be so proudful when everything you have has been a gift? I mean, this is a humbling question, isn't it? What do you possess that didn't come to you as a gift? We were born with talents and propensities and a personality. At an early age, we picked up stuff from the people around us. Later in life, we went to school and were taught and trained. But all that information, all that instruction was a gift. There's no such thing as a man, a self-made man or a self-made woman. All you have is ultimately because of God and a parent and a teacher and a coach and a friend. In his book, White Fang, Jack London, he describes the wolf's extraordinary fighting powers. He writes, the parts of him were better adjusted than the average dog body and brain, was more a perfect mechanism. Not that he was to be praised for it. Nature had been more generous to him than to the average animal. That was all. And the same observation can be made relating to you and me. You may be gifted, you may be richly talented, but it had nothing to do with you. In London's words, nature, or we might substitute God, has been more generous to us. That was all. This year's commencement speech at Dillard University was delivered by actor Denzel Washington. Denzel urged the undergrads, he said, put God first in everything you do. Everything that I have is by the grace of God. It's a gift. I, don't al- I didn't always stick with him, but he stuck with me. While you're on your knees, say thank you for grace, for mercy, for understanding, for wisdom, for parents, for love for kindness, for humility, for peace, for prosperity. And Denzel is right. We all owe God. I don't care how hard you've worked in your life. It was still God who gave you the good health to work hard. It Reminds me of the pastor who asked his friend, will you pray that I stay humble? His friend replied, well, first tell me, what do you have to be proud about? The answer for all of us is zilch. All we have is a gift. And Paul has a follow-up question. Now, if you did indeed receive it, why do you now boast as if you had not received it? Notice, why are you pretending that you did this all yourself? Reminds me of the woodpecker who was pecking at the trunk of an old oak tree. Suddenly a bolt of lightning struck the tree and split it in two. The lightning knocked the bird off of the oak tree. The woodpecker was shocked in more ways than one. But later the woodpecker returned to the scarred tree. He brought with him nine of his friends. He pointed to the split trunk and he said, There it is, fellows. Behold the power of my beak. Let's not be as foolish. Let's not take credit for what is so obviously a gift from God. You know, it angered Paul to think that these arrogant Corinthians were bragging over gifts from God as if they had originated with them. He mocks them with sarcasm in verse 8. You are already full. You are already rich. You have reigned as kings without us. And indeed, I could wish you did reign that we also might reign with Him. The Corinthians were acting as if they had arrived. They were so haughty. They acted so spiritual. If all you had listened to was the Corinthians' estimation of themselves, you would have assumed that they were the fullest, richest, most anointed Christians on the planet. If you had walked into the church at Corinth and seen their pompous, self-righteous attitudes, you would have asked, when did Jesus return and put you guys in charge? The Christians in Corinth thought they were right, and everybody not named me was wrong. Have you ever seen a prideful person and kind of thought to yourself, man, if I could buy that guy for what he's actually worth and sell him for what he thinks he's worth, I'd be a millionaire. Well, that is exactly how Paul summed up the Corinthians. There will be a day yet future after the church has been perfected that we all will reign with Christ. But the Corinthians were acting as if that day had already arrived. And in response, Paul tells them, he says, I can only wish, oh, for the day when that'll be true, when I can reign with Christ rather than be reigned on by this world. For that had been his plight up until now, he writes in verse 9. For I think that God has displayed us, the apostles, last as men condemned to death. For we have been made a spectacle to the world both to angels and to men. The word spectacle was well known to Roman citizens. The emperor managed the masses by keeping their stomachs full and their minds entertained. Bread and circuses was the Caesar's formula. And the various forms of Roman entertainment were all known as spectacles. Amphitheaters were built all over the empire to host athletic competitions Chariot races were held in Rome's Circus Maximus, the Talladega of the day. After the Roman Colosseum was built, the emperor would flood its floor and stage mock naval battles to entertain the crowds. And of course, there was the infamous gladiators who fought to the death there in the arena. But the favorite fix for the bloodthirsty Romans was to toss Christian leaders to hungry lions and watch them get mauled to death. Paul points out that while these haughty Corinthians are passing frivolous judgments on one another and causing dissension in their ranks, other believers in the church are paying a steep price to follow Jesus Christ. The Corinthians were acting juvenile. They were making a carnal scene while heaven was focused on the men and women that this world had turned into spectacles. Irony of ironies, Heaven and earth, men and angels, had their eyes focused on the martyrs in the arena. All the Corinthians had their eyes fixed on was themselves. And this certainly applies to you and me, does it not? We moan because we don't like our job. We don't get paid enough. We don't get the attention we deserve. Oh, we haven't been given the opportunities other people have. Oh, our church isn't as friendly as it should be. We, we moan and major over all these petty things. All the while, Christian pastors are being held and tortured in Iranian prisons. Sudanese Christians are under persecution. Local governments in India make it hard on churches and men who preach the gospel. Are we like the Corinthians, all huddled together in our little cliques, focused on ourselves and on our own needs, oblivious to what concerns the God in heaven? I'm afraid Christians today have adopted a consumer mentality. It's all about what scratches my back and meets my needs. Our approach to church is what's in it for me. Entertain my kids. Keep my high schoolers out of trouble. Give me some music, some peppy music that makes me happy. I need some practical pointers that help me solve my problems. I don't want anything that's going to challenge me to change my life. Like the Corinthians, many Christians today are all about me and mine, while heaven is fixated elsewhere. Verse 10 is a study in perception. Paul contrasts how the world viewed the persecuted apostles up against how the prideful Corinthians saw themselves. Paul writes sarcastically, We are fools for Christ's sake. Oh, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak but you are strong. You are distinguished, but we are dishonored. Remember, the Greeks and the Jews, they represented the two poles of human value at the time. The Greeks were into wisdom, whereas the Jews were into power. And yet God chose to defy what the world valued most. The cross was foolishness to the Greeks, and it was weakness to the Jews. The church consisted of not many mighty, not many noble. God chose the folks that the world deemed deemed foolish to shame the wise. And the people the world saw as weak to show off his strength. You see, God gave the world the exact opposite of what it had prioritized. With the cross and with the church, it was as if God was scoffing at what the world valued most. And yet this irony had escaped the Corinthians. This was a church that still aspired to the values of this world. The Corinthians hung on to philosophy and logic and the facade of worldly wisdom. While the apostles humbled themselves, they were willing to appear foolish and weak and become fools for Christ. You see, the apostles had renounced human strength and political muscle and had trusted in God's Spirit. If Jesus died on the cross, then they could be weak in man's estimation. The Corinthians, though, had tried to maintain a hip, sophisticated, cultured image, whereas the apostles were willing to endure ridicule and scorn to be associated with Jesus. And I hope this same irony isn't lost on us. The church today reveals its shallowness if we think that our success is tied in any way to what this world values. Beauty, brains, brawn is still what makes the world go round, but not the kingdom of God. According to Romans 14 verse 17, the kingdom of God is righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. You see, God saves us and then he uses us in ways that mock this world's system and values. Christianity flips life topsy-turvy. God uses fools, not geniuses. The weak, not the swole. Paul is trying to show these Corinthians that they were judging success by worldly, not godly measurements. Let us not make the same mistake. Perhaps you've seen the movie Field of Dreams. I watch it on occasion. In fact, I like to watch it for different reasons. It basically is about an Iowa farmer named Ray Kinsella who hears a voice from his cornfield telling him to plow under his crop and build a baseball diamond. He builds it and invisible players from a bygone era materialize and practice ball on the field. Of course, his extended family thinks he's a certifiable nut. I mean, he has plowed under precious farmland that he needs to make a profit. No one trusts his actions. They think he's reckless. Everybody calls him a fool. And I suppose I relate to the movie because as a Christian, I have also based life-altering decisions on a voice that nobody else has heard. I've taken economic risks to follow that voice. I have seen God in action when nobody else had faith. You see, this is the Christian life for all of us. It's an adventure into the unknown. Are you ready to be seen by other people the way Ray Kinsella's family and neighbors saw him? Are we willing to be a fool for Christ's sake? The Corinthians were proud and image conscious. They wanted to be seen as wise and strong and honorable. Paul could care less about his image. All he cared about was serving Jesus and being found faithful. It continues in verse 11. To the present hour, we both hunger and thirst, and we are poorly clothed and beaten and homeless. This was how the world treated the apostles, the leaders of the church. In fact, this was how the world treated the Lord Jesus himself. And yet somehow the Christians in Corinth, they thought that they could avoid any discomfort. They got things twisted around. They took pride in their prosperity. These Christians wore stylish threads and chilled in nice homes and avoided persecution. Paul says, it's time for you to recalibrate. You see, their Christianity was a different brand. Like a fake Prada purse, it was a knockoff of the real thing. And I wonder if you and I are guilty of the same crime. Think about it. Is our Christianity biblical Christianity? Is it the faith of the apostles? Or is it a modern American hybrid, just a knockoff faith? Well, right now in America, it's still somewhat cool to be a Christian. But trust me, that perception is changing fast. What happens when it costs you and me to be a Christian? The church today wants apostolic power to work miracles, to prophesy, to do and speak supernaturally. But are we willing to be treated like apostles? How would we handle the persecution and the scorn and the venom? What will pastors do when the IRS takes away the tax deduction for charitable giving and the churches no longer bring in enough money to pay them full time? I mean, how many so-called apostles today will act like the first apostles Paul writes of what he did. He says, and we labor, working with our own hands. Paul worked a job to support himself. Acts chapter 18 tells us that it was in Corinth that Paul met Aquila and Priscilla, and together these three friends picked up a needle and canvas, and they did the painstaking and boring work of making tents to pay their bills. I wonder if pastors have to return to that practice, how many will still relish the work of the ministry? Paul knew a steward's job was not just to be rich and comfortable, but to be faithful, even if it required sacrifice. And the first persecuted Christians, they considered an honor to follow Jesus. Come what may, Paul writes of their attitude in verse 12, being reviled, we bless. Being persecuted, we endure. Being defamed, we entreat. There was a beauty in Jesus that Paul was determined to follow, even in the way that Jesus reacted to opposition. Jesus fought back, and Paul was a fighter. Neither of the two men ever just rolled over. They fought back, yet Paul learned from his Lord Jesus a new way to fight. His reprisals were of love. When someone hurled an insult at him, Paul boomeranged back a blessing. Resistance was encountered with increased commitment. If Paul was falsely accused, he retaliated by proclaiming the truth. Paul sums up how the world of the first century treated its apostles, the church's apostles. He says, we have been made as the filth of the world, the offscouring of all things until now. In other words, we have been treated like the scum of the earth. Here's how erroneous human judgments can be. Here's how far off the world's values are from what God holds dear. Think of it. The very people heaven crowns, this world treats as scraps for the garbage disposal. Paul gets even more personal with the Corinthians in verse 14. He stops speaking to them as an apostle, even as a pastor. But he speaks to them as their spiritual father He writes to them, I do not write these things to shame you, but as my beloved children, I warn you. The Corinthians are Paul's spiritual kids, and as a father, he needs to warn them of some dangers. He says, for though you might have 10,000 instructors in Christ, yet you do not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I have begotten you through the gospel. See, Paul was the person who had led the Corinthians to Christ. He had gone to Corinth and he had planted this church. He was their spiritual father. Over their lifetime, they would have 10,000 teachers, but only one spiritual parent. And this is true of all believers. The pastor, the friend who led you to Christ, the church where you started your journey, it will always hold a special place in your heart. Over a lifetime, a Christian enjoys many churches and Bible teachers, but has only one parent. Which is what made the Corinthians' doubts of Paul's ministry all the more painful to him. These were his kids. Now I've got to tell you, this is how I feel about you guys. Over the last few years, I've traveled a bit and I've taught at a lot of churches in a lot of different places. And I enjoy speaking to different groups about Jesus. I feel that I can be a help in other places. But I've realized what Paul is saying here. When I'm a guest speaker somewhere, I'm kind of like a pilot of a bomber plane. You know, I just kind of fly over and I drop the bomb and then I fly home. And it's the local pastor who's on the ground who has to kind of manage the impact. I'm just a ship passing in the night. But the local pastor's there. He's responsible in the long term. I'm an instructor, one of many. But I'm not their father. Yet when I'm here at Calvary Chapel, Stone Mountain, it's just the opposite. In the words of Darth Vader, Luke, I am your father. And for many of you, I am a spiritual father. I was there when you were saved. You've grown up spiritually in God's word here at Calvary Chapel. I've baptized many of you. There's a bond between us. And if I saw you going astray, trust me, I wouldn't just sit on my hands and do nothing about it. I'd try to warn you just as Paul is alerting his sons in the faith. And yet what grieved Paul's heart was that the Corinthians had listened to his critics rather than trust him and his ministry. They were being rebellious kids. The Corinthians were acting like adolescents, know-it-all teenagers. They were being prideful and self-absorbed, and they were bucking the authority that God had placed over them. They thought they knew more than the old man. And realize this is what breaks a pastor's heart. Not when someone moves at the call of God. I rejoice in God's will for your life, even if I'm not involved. But when somebody gets the big head and rejects wise counsel and refuses to listen to love, it hurts. Here's the truth I've learned. Love flows downward. You know, my kids, they don't love me as much as I love them. Trust me. And I suppose I don't love my parents as much as they love me. None of us love God as much as he loves us. You see, love always flows downward. And the same is true in the body of Christ. The people you lead spiritual and dis- spiritually and disciple, they won't love you as much as you love them. This means you'll get rejected at times, and it'll hurt. Knowing this truth doesn't make it any less painful, <laughs> just not as surprising. Paul had loved the Corinthians, but it wasn't being reciprocated. He makes this amazing appeal to this church in verse 16. He says, therefore, I urge you, imitate me. What a powerful statement. Paul is not like the parent who says to his kids, do as I say, but not as I do. And if you're such a parent, don't be surprised when those words are ignored by your kids. The leadership people respect is not just rhetoric, but it's example. Paul was a leader by example. Verse 17, For this reason I have sent Timothy to you, who is my beloved and faithful son in the Lord. Not all of Paul's love had been unreciprocated. Timothy had stood by Paul. He was a faithful son in the Lord. He says, Who will remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach everywhere in every church? Timothy had traveled with Paul. He could testify that what Paul had taught the Corinthians, he had communicated to all the churches. It wasn't being harder on them than on others. Paul continues, Now some are puffed up as though I were not coming to you. Some of the Corinthians had the attitude, Well, while the cat's away, the rats will play. In Paul's absence, self-promoting leaders had taken over. Apparently, the church in Corinth had a leadership vacuum, and the wrong kind of leader had stepped up. Paul is not going to leave this church in disarray. If they can't get it together on their own, he's going to pay them a visit, and it's up to them whether it's a pleasant one or not. He says in verse 19, but I will come to you shortly if the Lord wills, and I will know not the word of those who are puffed up, but the power For the kingdom of God is not in word, but in power. Oh my, the Corinthians, they would spoken a lot of words. They were good talkers. They'd been doing a lot of talking. They'd been stirring up strife, lots of dissension. Paul's going to come and shut them up. Paul packed a pow. Apparently, the apostle Paul was one tough hombre. He wasn't one to back down from a conflict. He was willing to lace on the gloves. Paul and the apostles were willing to be weak in the world's eyes, but in the church, they weren't afraid to flex some spiritual muscle. Now, I'm not sure exactly what Paul had in mind for this church, but it sounds like to me he's ready to cram a little humble pie down some haughty Corinthian throats. Paul had some power up his sleeve. He certainly moved in the spirit. He even worked miracles at times. He definitely spoke with authority. Spiritual authority manifests itself in various ways, but you know it when you see it. And Paul is going to come to them with authority. One thing's for sure, when Paul hits town, he's going to demand an accounting of the Corinthians' carnality. It's going to be put up or shut up time for this church. And yet Paul wants his return to Corinth to be a happy reunion. In chapter 4, he closes verse 21 with a question. He says, what do you want? Shall I come to you with a rod or in love and a spirit of gentleness? It's your choice. He's speaking as a father to his kids. Do they want from him a nod of approval or do they want the rod of correction? He's willing to give them both. That nod of approval would be easier. Paul's approach to the Corinthians depends on their attitude toward him. You know, sometimes discipleship requires discipline. It takes both love and a firm hand to lead. I have now raised three boys. Some applause? Yeah, thanks. And I have learned that if you want to turn wannabe men into real men, you can't be afraid of a little conflict. I was never a dictator. Despite what my kids will tell you, I was never a dictator. My first appeal was always to logic. I would reason with my kids to a point. But reason doesn't always work on boys. So I would take off my belt. And often just the act... The mere threat of taking off my belt was enough. All I had to do sometimes was just kind of hang my belt over the bedroom door. And it said to my boys that dad meant business. And here Paul is letting the Corinthians know that he means business. He loves them too much not to lead. I'll close this morning with a line from a country song. Sometimes you're the windshield, sometimes you're the bug. Well, here Paul is saying something very similar. At times, he was weak for Jesus' sake. He was the bug that took the hit. But not this time. The Corinthians. If the Corinthians are going to bug him, they're going to end up the bug. Father, thank you.